turned out to be a lovely song to lead in. I quickly wrote just before I came up, you rescued me so I could stand and sing. And then the refrain, I, I am a child of God, is what we're singing. We're singing other things. We're singing about how great Jesus is. Revelation tells us we'll be singing, worthy is the lamb that was slain. You rescued me so that. And the, the so that is a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today. And we need to remember it. So it's good leading, good leading. Grace of God. Because before we can discuss the Christian mission, we actually need to be reminded of the human mission. There's a, there's a human mission that's underneath the Christian mission. Um, Christ came to save sinners. First Timothy 1.15, Christ came to save sinners, flat out, fallen humans. And we preach a gospel of salvation, salvation for those human sinners. Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the gospel saves humans. The gospel is for everybody. Uh, it works for everyone who believes. It's for everyone. It's for every, every human being. To save from sin. Sin which keeps them alienated from their true created human mission. There's a for in salvation, not just a from. There's a for. It's a, you know, we're not just saved. You know, just, oh, it's great, saved. I'm going to put it on a shelf. It's saved. No, we're saved for something. And we've got to remember what the for is. The word of God and the unwavering testimony of the church from the apostles and the fathers to our own day have, have given a, a, a form, an expression uh, to, this, to this purpose, to this, you know, what I'm calling the human mission. And uh, you've probably heard it a thousand times. You may even resent me for being so elementary, but uh, I'm going to quote the famous words from the Westminster Catechism. Question number one. Question number one, Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what people are for. What am I here for? That's what you're here for. We preach salvation, but we also have to say, because that's what you're here for. And there's a distance between where we are or where we were and that mission. And the work of the gospel is to address that gap. By the way, I'm not a Presbyterian. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm Anglican. So you know, we, we don't have that in our... So, so, like, you you, you got to give them credit. You know, like, they, they, they did good work. They did good work with that one. Human joy is perfectly and eternally realized in the full expression of that human mission. So then there's the Christian mission, the gospel mission. The gospel mission, and I'm, I'm sensible. You wrote a book, right? Mission, right? Yeah. You just, just did that, right? Yeah. yeah. So I don't know what this has to do with what you wrote. I hope I'm not contradicting anything. Um, read his book. I haven't read it, but I'm sure it's great. Um, 
The, the Christian mission is to bring people, to bring people to the God. You know, we catch people. We're fishers of men. Uh, we catch people and bring them to Jesus Christ so that he can restore them to the human mission. So our mission, our gospel mission, is bring people to Jesus so that he can make them fit for the human mission, for our eternal purpose. Because the gospel is not an eternal purpose. The gospel is, 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 is in this world. Uh, and it's good news to people who haven't heard it, but it's so that they can get to that ultimate and eternal mission, which uh, needs to be done because um, sinners cannot please God and because no sinner can inherit eternal life. Uh, Both things need to be observed. Romans 8.8, uh, they that are in the flesh are carnal, cannot please God. So we're not capable of pleasing him, giving glory. And 1 John 3, 6, no one who lives in Christ keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has seen him or known him. Uh, we're not going to be in that eternal life. Uh, and we're not going to please God. So we're, we're not going to fulfill that mission unless Christ operates in our lives to transform us into something new, a new creation. There's an implication of that, I think, I'm going to offer to you today. There is a touchstone, then, by which the gospel mission may be measured. Does it foster the human mission? Uh, which, which is what I've been calling it, but now I'm going I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to use a more common phrase. Uh, the human mission, that's a novelty. I'm going to use a more familiar phrase. Does it promote the glory of God? Does it promote the glory of God? You can call anything a gospel mission. And people do. All sorts of works are called a gospel mission. I'm not here to preach against works. By the way, you know, in that little thing, you know, the amelioration of the human condition. Well, I'm not against ameliorating the human condition. I mean, I think Christians should be concerned with ameliorating the human condition. But that's not the measure of what we're doing. It's something we do. And if we don't do it, there's something dreadfully wrong with us. Blessed James in, in his epistle would say. Uh, Peter would say. They all say. John says it. How can you say you love God if you don't love your neighbor? I mean, we, yes, yes, we ameliorate. But that's not the measure. The measure is the promotion of the glory of God, the promotion of the glorification of God. Do we bring people into what they were created for? Do we bring people to the Lord so that they can be what they were created for? Sons and daughters of the Most High. Well, my fear... Actually, my observation is that in nearly all of worldly righteousness and in a great deal of Christian righteousness, that ultimate aim of the gospel gets completely lost. Um, People complain, if they do, about cheap grace. Cheap grace and making things too easy. You've got to be serious about blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, I, I suppose that's a valid criticism. I mean, it's too easy. But easy is not the real problem. 
um, after all, the Lord himself said in Matthew 11, 28, 30, come to me, my yoke is easy. So you, know, you just can't say like, well, just because something's easy doesn't mean it's wrong. Jesus does make some things easier for us. He makes it easy for us to come and cry to the Father, Abba, dear Father, we love you, we trust you, we need you. We need a lot of other things. And Jesus says, your Heavenly Father knows you need them all. So there are things that are easy. That's not, my, that's not the real problem with cheap grace. The problem with cheap grace is it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You get crappy results. You don't get lives that glorify God. And especially, you do not promote the glorification of God in others. There's, there's no invitation to move into that identity. You just get a, 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 a sort of a, a get-out-of-hell-free card, you know, like in Monopoly, you know? You get a hell-out-of-free card, and you just put it in your pocket, and it's like, okay, well, now you've got your get-out-of-hell-free card, and, you know, come the day when you need it. You say, oh, 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 damnation. No, no, I don't think so. I got my, I got my card. That's not what the Bible's about. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. There's a, there's a contemporary fixation on, uh, I don't want to get in trouble here, but whatever. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a contemporary fixation on, on healing woundedness. Not that we're not wounded. Making people feel better. Um, comforting others is, is, is really important. Uh, remedying our hurts. Uh, you listen to a lot of a lot of the praise music or worship music on the, on the radio, and and even the patter between the between the musical sets. Um, not all the time, not a lot of the time, maybe, but you, you do hear this sort of. I, I'm I'm a, I'm I, I get nervous when it's it's like you know I used to feel bad, now I feel good. You know, come to my church, you could feel good too. Well, you're not always going to feel good. <laughs> It's not gonna, that's not how it works. And that isn't really what it's for. That's not what our mission is for. Um, I don't think that that message necessarily, uh, intentionally, consciously promotes the gospel mission in support of the human mission. Uh, it's a temptation to, uh, to be self-soothing instead of God-glorifying. It's, uh, uh, Augustine uses the word incurvatus. It means, it means you turn in on yourself and you're concerned with the things of the self. But, but that isn't what the gospel liberates us for. The gospel liberates us to appreciate God as he deserves to be appreciated and as we ought to. Uh, uh, not ought to as a scold, but ought to as a... As a as what else are we doing if we're not doing that? We're missing the opportunity. Amen. Great. And when you when you make that the when you make that that sub Christian sub gospel mission the mission of the church, you are not only self soothing but you're 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 soothing others, uh, and soothing others. Not that we shouldn't soothe others, but soothing others. 
uh, altruistically inviting them into our, our little self-soothing pity party, it is not agape. It is not true charity. Sharing salvation, God-glorifying life, eternal life, that is true charity. That's love. That's getting people what they need. So let's look at today's gospel. If, you, if you've got a Bible, you can open to Matthew 5. Uh, just a few verses. It's a short lesson. That doesn't mean you're going to get a short sermon. Just a short lesson. And uh, at Matthew 5.13, um, we see that these concepts, I'm going to argue, these concepts are front-loaded in Jesus' preaching. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which I believe you read last week, yeah, you did. Okay, good. The Sermon on the Mount, uh, the, the, the Beatitudes is what you read last week, uh, and the Beatitudes are, are commonly divided at the end of 12, because that's the end of all these blessings. But I'm gonna, we're going to look at that in a second. But, but certainly at 13, it seems to be a, a Caesar, and we seem to be switching topics. Uh, so at 13, um, Jesus follows up on what, on what we heard last week. Um, you know, last week there's a, a series of bold propositions. You know, Jesus, you know, you know he, he sees the multitudes and he opens his mouth and taught them, saying. And then what does he say? What he says is uh, that uh, what is favorable, what is desirable, what is happy, what is fortunate, lucky, blessed in a human life is not apparently what you thought. Because each, each one, you, know, you are the luckiest one in the world. When all these dreadful things, you know, it's just one thing after another. Thirsty, hungry, you know, sad, uh, mourning. Um, but at verse 11 in the Beatitudes, there's a significant transition. At verse 11... His address changes from the third person to the second person. He, not, not blessed are they, but blessed are you. Blessed are you. This is, important, this is an important change. Because up until that point, it's like, oh, you know, uh, you know blessed are the peacemakers. They should be, well, how nice for that. You know? But then he says, blessed are you. Blessed are you. And you hear, you who are with me, Jesus, you who hear me, Jesus, you who are following me, Jesus. And, well, that would include us, wouldn't it? I mean, we're sitting at the feet of Jesus. We're listening to his words. We're his followers. So when he says you, this is a you that means you and me. This is us. And what does he say? He says, what do we have to look forward to? We who are followers of Jesus. Um, hmm. Revilings, persecution, evil reports, libel. And then he says, as were the prophets, the prophets of God, who were before you. Before there was a you, there was a them. And them and you, you're in the same boat. What happened to them will happen to you. Uh, 
their glory is your glory. Uh, this is one identity, and Jesus is really looking straight at us. He's saying, I'm not talking about hypothetical anymore. I'm talking about what, 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 I'm talking about your life. What's going to happen to you, who you are. And um, what follows then in today's gospel is, is, is not a for you, it is, uh, it is you. It is you. It's not advice, it's not, it's not a prescription, it's a description. Uh, verse 13, he says, you are, you are the salt of the earth. Uh, verse 14, you are the light of the world. And then he uses some similes. Uh, he says, you know, so, so, a, a city on a hill, that's verse 14, you are a city on a hill. Uh, you're to be compared, your case is to be the, compared to the case of a city on a hill. Uh, or verse 15, to be like a lamp on a stand. Salt and light. And this third thing, which temporarily, let's call it like visibility, or what, what, what I say in that little thing, like prominent. Whatever I said, it, it was good. It was good. In the little uh, uh, invisibility. Uh, it, no, 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 no. It's, it's the conspicuous. Right. We're conspicuous. It's like, you know, we don't have a, you know we're, to be seen. To be seen. Okay, we'll get to that. I'm, I'm going to waste my time. Um, okay, so salt and light, and then this third thing. And I think you're getting a hint. This third thing is what I want to emphasize today. And the reason I want to emphasize is because it, it gets neglected. It gets neglected. Uh, the salt and the light don't get neglected. And I think there's a reason for it. The salt and the light are, I think, seen as positive and helpful and salubrious by the, by the, by the, wider, by the wider world. Like, the wider world likes the church when the church is doing favors and not asking to get paid. I mean, like, who wouldn't, you know? The, the, wider, the, the, the wider world likes to see good deeds. They like to see... But they don't want to be reminded about Jesus. So it's like, salt, yay! You know, light, yay! You know, I'm a Christian. Well, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, like... Other people do good things, which other people do good things for all kinds of reasons. That's a whole other sermon. But, but the salt and the light, yes. The kind of not willing to be a shrinking violet, not willing to sort of, well, I'm going to go to church. No, that's one of the three things. That's one of the three things in this image. So... Um, as long as we're not visibly Christian standing out, standing... doing that. Well, then we're not so popular. Then, then, then people can't say, well, we're really all in this together. We all really believe the same thing. Because we manifestly don't believe the same thing. We believe in Jesus and other people don't. So you can't say we're all just doing the same thing. But as long as we keep it to the, to the being helpful and useful, we're all doing the same thing. It's only when we start talking about Jesus we're not all doing the same thing. It's only when we talk about what are people for that we start to diverge from what the world is saying. Let's get back to salt. We may not even be getting that one right. Um, 
salt. I looked at a lot, a lot of commentaries, a lot of sermons. Salt flavors, preserves, disinfects, protects, makes wholesome. So all the preachers say, and, and maybe so. But Jesus says something interesting in this passage. He, he doesn't say, you are the salt of the world. Um, he says, you're the salt of the earth. Um, at, at, um, at verse 14, he says, he says uh, the light of the world, uh, the, the cosmos, the, the, the order of things. Um, which is kind of the word we expect to hear. Uh, in this world, you will have troubles. You know, like all over the place. So it's like, you know, we're, we're in the world. But here he says, the earth. Uh, the, the, the words related to, to Gaia, to geology, rocks, dirt, the land. So you are the salt of the, of the dirt. You're the salt of the earth. You're, maybe this is a, a term of art. Uh, if you went to Mark 4, you don't have to, but if, if you went to Mark 4.35 or Luke 14.34, where Jesus has the same teaching, um, he says that worthless salt is good for nothing, neither for direct application to the soil, nor to be mixed in with the manure pile. It's good for neither of those. Now, maybe the salt is not the salt we're thinking about. Maybe we're not thinking of a salt shaker on a table. Or salt using to preserve. Maybe the salt of the earth is not so much about making the world a nicer place, a healthier place. Maybe what it means is that the world should become a more fruitful place. The metaphor could very reasonably, if you look at everything Jesus said on the subject, be talking about nourishing and fostering the bringing forth of fruit. Which, if it meant that, would go very nicely with the point of his remarks at verse 16, where he says that they should glorify your Father in heaven, which is spiritual fruit. So this salt idea... Um, may really, more strongly than we thought, reinforce the concept of bringing people to the glorification of God. Helping them bring forth in their lives the things that are pleasing to God. And fruit that lasts. It turns out, you know, that, uh, well, uh, the, the fact is that salt is used as a, you could look it up, and don't not on your phones, not now, but you could look it up, and you would see that, that it's actually, it turns out that salt really was used. Uh, complex salts, but even simple salt, even NACL, even just regular table salt, was, was used, and even today, apparently it's used in, uh, uh, I can't believe I know this, I didn't know it a week ago, uh, it's used in coconut culture, uh, growing coconuts, you've got to use a little bit of salt to, to, to get them to grow right. Light, okay, salt and light. Light is another one. What does it mean? Well, light exposes the truth, things as they are. You can see in the light. That's probably the strongest meaning. But in Philippians 2, uh, Paul speaks of individual saints as lights in the world, which brings imagery of, of beacons or, or guide lights or even stars, you know, guiding stars. 
uh, because light, light is a funny thing. You know, those lights in the plane that they say, like when all the lights go out and you've got to get out of the plane, it's filling with smoke. There are those little lights alone. Th those lights are not to light up the room, but they are to show you where to go. So I don't, I don't really have a, a I'm, I'm not going to argue it's one or the other, but I, I, think that, I think that if you take the whole counsel of God, you look through all the New Testament, there is the idea of, of sort of seeing the world the way it is, but there's also the idea that Christian lives become beacons. You know, you sort of, you sort of look off in the distance and you see a Christian here and a Christian, and you sort of see the way to go. You see the way to go. So, so just just offering that as a as a, as a thought about life, uh, which um, uh, which as a, as a symbol of, of, of visibility uh, uh, of being uh, conspicuous brings me to the third point, which is. Uh, where he starts talking about being able to be seen, that you can be seen, that this is part of, part of what, what we need to do. We need to be seen. A city on a hill can not be concealed. It's an ontological impossibility. The city's above the tree line. There are people living there. They're there to be seen. A, you, there's no way you can hide, I mean, on Star Trek with the cloaking device maybe, but in the real world, you can't hide a city on a hill. You can't pretend it's not there. It's there to be seen. And, and a lamp, a lamp, I wouldn't say a lamp cannot be hid, but Jesus says a lamp must not be hid. Uh, because it would, it would contradict the very purpose of the lamp. All right, so this is, a, this is a call to the church. This is a call to, you know, you, you, know you, you can't hide a city on a hill. Well, you could hide a lamp, but, but, but you can't do that either. You, you can't do that because, because then what is the lamp for? If, what's the point of it being a lamp if it's going to be hidden? It's, it's not, is it really a lamp if it's hidden? Uh, so you, followers working in my name, for my name's sake, must be seen as such. Working what's good to provoke the response not, wow you're a great guy, you are glorious no, to provoke this response, God is awesome when the, when, the, when, the, when the church is doing what it should be doing the response is what an amazing God that these things could be happening Properly done, and this kind of goes back to that end of the Beatitudes, blessed are ye when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Properly done, Christian good works then provoke both murderous rage and rapt adoration of God. Somebody ought to think you're a jerk for being a Christian. If no one thinks you're a jerk because you're a Christian, you had to re-examine what's going on. Because it, it doesn't seem possible. Provoking only one. Because some people provoke murderous rage, but nobody ever glorifies God. You know, we don't want that either. Uh, provoking only one means that we're leaving something out. And provoking neither. Well, that's, uh, that's where we live, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, all right, I'll, I'll just speak for myself. You can say what you want about yourself. None means that we're pleasant, we're helpful, we're agreeable, people like us. And we take that and we call it being a Christian. We call it being a Christian. We're not living above the tree line. We're, we're just blending in with the crowd 
when we do that. The, the two similes Jesus uses could perhaps correspond to the corporate character of the church and the personal Christian witness. Because the city on a hill can not be hid. The, the church can not be hid. But you could choose not to live there, couldn't you? So that's, that's sort of the corporate image. Because a city, a police political entity, a, a city is, 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 a, is a corporate thing. So in our corporate life, the church could be carrying a witness, and you could just say, yeah, the church is carrying a witness. I'm just going to make sure I'm not up there, you know, especially when invading armies come. I don't, don't want to be in that city. I don't want to be seen to be in that city. Uh, and then the second illustration, perhaps, uh, is, is, is more uh, 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 likens our personal, our personal Christian well, a, a lit lamp also shines. There, there is a sense in which, even if you're being a bad Christian, you can't help but shine. I mean, you're alive, and you're, you're going to heaven, and you, and, you, and you know the truth about Christ. You have that light. But you could make the perverse decision, and Jesus is showing how incredibly perverse that decision would be. The perverse decision, that even though you have this light, you're going to cover it, you're going to hide it uh, and not let it shine. You're going to put it under a bushel instead of on a, on a, on a lampstand. I could name dozens. I'm not going to. You go home and do the homework yourself. But I could name dozens and with a little work, hundreds of, quote, Christian ministries which have made the strategic decision Think how much more good we could do if we dropped the name of Jesus. Like, this is not hypothetical. Like, I'm not going to talk about it from the pulpit, but this is not a hypothetical. I'm Episcopalian. I see it all the time. And I'm telling you, I see it. How much more good we could do if we just dropped the name of Jesus so that we're available to everybody because Jesus gets in the way. Then you rarely put it that boldly. But that's the idea. What more good is it that you're going to do by dropping the name of Jesus? What is going to be better in somebody's life? Like, there's that extra bit that I could do if only Jesus didn't get involved. I mean, I'm not saying something wouldn't happen, but, but will it bring people to their human mission of, of, of giving glory to God and enjoying Him forever? What is that extra little margin that you're going to get by dropping the name of Jesus? This is on a corporate level. It's also on a personal level. You know, there are corporate identities, corporate ministries, again and again. I, I read them just, just to check my bases, even though I know it's true. I read the mission statements of all sorts of, you know, they got the word church in the name. They got the word Jesus in the name. They got the word Christian in the name. You read their mission statement, not a word about Jesus. Not a word about Jesus. We do this and we do that and we do the other thing. Not a word about Jesus. But it happens in our personal life, too. It happens when we make decisions to conceal our Christian identity for social advantage... 
uh, we'll be able to get further if we just downplay that. Or, this is, I think, even worse. Of course, none of you do that, but maybe I do. Uh, downplaying our Christian identity because if we let people know we're Christian, they could call us on it. They could say, well, if you're a Christian, why are you acting like that? You know, if you're a Christian, you know, why, 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 why are you such a miserable person? Like, why are you helping you know, but if we don't let people know we're a Christian, nobody can call us on it. There's so many reasons to drop the name of Jesus. It's extremely inconvenient if you're trying to get ahead in the world. If that's what we're doing. In a similar fashion, we must not be ashamed. Okay, I've got to wrap this up. Holy smoke. In a similar fashion, we must not be ashamed of those who are being shamed for the name of Christ. Hebrews 13.3, remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are being mistreated as if you in your own body was being mistreated. There's a radical solidarity with the suffering church, with the humiliated church, with the rejected church. It is often unfashionable or even dangerous to be a Christian. Are we glad when others are the ones who get to take the heat? Or do we step up and take the heat also? This is not a call just to glue a plastic Jesus on every act and every speech we make in our lives. That's not what I'm talking about. In fact, quite the reverse. It's an, it's, it's an exhortation. I'm exhorting you to, to authenticity, integrity, or to use an overemployed modern expression, to transparency. When we say transparent, it doesn't mean that we're transparent, but it means that our acts and our speech are designed to expose, not conceal, who we are and what we're trying to do. That's what transparency, I mean, that's what the word, that's what we, that's that modern word. It wasn't used in the New Testament times, but, the, but I'm talking about what people mean when they say transparency. Not that people see through you. It's that your actions and speech is not designed to hide who you are or what you're trying to do. It's designed to show who you are and what you're trying to do. These things need to be held up by every Christian. I mean, I think I can say that with confidence. The power of consistent, integrated Christian witness cannot be overestimated. I have a friend, one of the finest Christians I know. I mean, I, I just, it's one of those people, like, every year you know him or her, you, 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 you grow in, in the gratitude to God that such a, such a person is, is in your life. And he tells the story, of, he's actually a Jewish man, New Yorker, he he, he worked in a, in a nondescript like, uh, government office, for some department of, 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 the, of the state of New York. And, and there was a woman in the office, and, and she, uh, from time to time, not constantly, but from time to time, we talk about her church, from time to time, you know, would say something about Jesus. Uh, but, you know, we know she mostly like, did her work. She was helpful. She, was, she, she had a sense of being... You're competent and in control. And the, and the funny thing was, he said, he said, actually, I didn't really think much of her. I, I, I thought, like, whatever she has, I, I, I have more. You know, she's really not, like, his attitude was almost, what's she got to be so happy about? Like, 
you know, in this miserable little state office where we're all miserable drones trudging along, she's even more miserable than me. Except that she apparently is not. And he finally came to the conclusion there really is only one thing that she has that I don't have. And it's Jesus. And even though it's the last thing I ever thought I would do, could I come to your church on Sunday? Could I come to your church on Sunday? And he did. And he became a Christian. Her witness was effective because it was natural and consistent. It made my friend ask, not what's so special about her, but who is this God she serves? I can't help it. He seems wonderful. Not at all like the God I tell myself I don't believe in. Not that God. Some other God that I really never heard about. But now I want to. Personalities are different, circumstances are different, but Jesus really is the same. There's, there's, there's only one Jesus, and it's always referenced to him. Larry Norman, the, arguably the father of Christian rock, they gave him a hard time once. They, they, said, they said, why do you do these songs that are not Christian songs? And his answer was, I'm a Christian. All my songs are Christian songs. I, I think that that's the model. I think if we keep that, I, we, that's the model. The first layer of Peter. As God who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. You don't have to keep dropping pious aphorisms every five seconds. But you do have to be a Christian and be willing to be seen as a Christian as you go about your life. And if you do that, you will be promoting the glory God. And now if you'll indulge me, I just want one little last point. I have picked very prosaic examples. Girl at work. Guy who writes songs. You know, prosaic, not heroic examples. But the Lord Jesus Christ said, if one who is faithful in a little will be faithful in much. If you get this right, on that, on that daily life level, if you are called upon to be at a heroic scale, you will be ready to do it. I have no doubt God will be there for you, and you will do it. I think of um, an example from very long ago, example from very recently, and then I'm done. Polycarp of Smyrna. He, he got caught up in, in persecutions in the early days of the church. Uh, he was dragged before the Romans. Uh, he, was, he was told he'd be tortured, he'd be killed. No one wanted to hurt him. He was old, old, old man. So they said, just, just deny Jesus and you can go home. Nobody wants to hurt you. And he said, the Lord has been good to me. For 86 years. Now, we don't know if that means he was 86 years old or he had been a Christian for 86 years. But it's a long time either way. 
And at that great age, he said, why on earth would I, like, what kind of deal is this? He's been good to me all these years. You obviously just want to kill people. <laughs> like, why would I choose you? Why would I, why would I get another year? The thing is, it was those 86 years of faithful life that made it possible for him to say, and I don't want any other life than that life. You know, you can take my life. I'm not trading it in for anything less than being a servant of the Lord. And to pick a more recent example from the last century, Corey Ten Boom, you, I know everybody talks about Corey Ten Boom, you, you, you know probably about her, but if you don't, she was, and I'm not sure, I think it was 56 years old. 56? 50, something like that. 56 years old. That's my wife. She, she knows more about Corey than than I do. When the Nazis rolled into Amsterdam in the Netherlands, Corrie ten Boom was the most innocuous person you ever wanted to meet. A spinster, lived with her dad and her sister. She baked cookies. She ran Bible studies, little classes watched the neighborhood children year after year after year. Building her life above the tree line, being seen to be a Christian. When the Nazis rolled in, she was completely prepared to be a hero. She was completely prepared. She went to the concentration camps. She taught by the same Bible lesson she learned that she was teaching the children while she was feeding them milk and cookies. She was telling starving people in rags in a concentration camp. She was completely prepared by all those years of that, all those little things. She was completely prepared. And after the war, she went around the world. Her, her great book, From the Time of the War, The Hiding Place, her great book, After the War, Tramp for the Lord, living out of a suitcase, going around the world, preaching the gospel. But it all started with the milk and cookies. It all started with the, you know, little Yanni. Do you know about Jesus? You know, you can come over to my house. They've got a bunch of the kids are coming. Uh, oh, in, in her shop, talking about Jesus now and then, being seen to be a Christian. This is what the Lord is calling us to do. If we are intentional about that, all the energy and all the power and all the fruit will be given to us and to the world by that God who is glorified in the saints. Amen.